You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. If I haven't met you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and I invite you to turn with me to our scripture reading for today. It comes from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read verse 9 through 13. Familiar passage of scripture, Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13. Of course, the gospel writer Matthew gives us these words. He's writing them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us today with the same kind of authorities of Jesus himself were teaching us and speaking to his church. So let's hear together as we begin the word of Christ. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. We've been studying this prayer uh, for five weeks, and and we've been studying it, we've been thinking about it in a a very particular way. We've been thinking about the kind of virtue that praying this prayer produces in the Christian life. So one of the things that we understand as believers is that one of the ways that God develops his character, his virtue in us, one of the ways that we understand who we now are in Christ is through prayer. And and as we've looked at these particular prayers, these five particular prayers within this one larger prayer, we've understood a lot about the kind of virtue that should be true of us those of us who are in Christ. And so we've been thinking about humility. We've been thinking about hope and gratitude and and forgiveness. And and what we've been saying through all of this is we haven't just been learning about these things, but but as you pray these prayers and, and understand this lens of prayer that God has given us with which to view him and to view the world, it actually creates, it produces these things in your life. And so today, as we look at the last prayer in here, The final prayer of this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want us to think about, and and I hope, I'm hopeful that what God will begin to produce in us is a sense of purity, a sense of rightness with who he is and how he has designed us to be. In the 1980s, there were all these movies about transformation, a lot of movies about like high school students transforming. Uh, becoming someone new, kind of leaving their old dorky and nerdy self behind and becoming a cool kid. So, you know, think of the movie She's Out of Control or even kind of see these tones in you know, the 80s classic The Breakfast Club. People kind of tr- going through this transformation uh, because of an experience or an event. And the, the key was in these transformations is you had to hide, you had to do away with all of the, the signs of your old, less cool self and, and really showcase the, the parts of you that were cool and were acceptable to the people uh, around you. And it's interesting, kind of around that same time, maybe shortly after that, I feel like the American church kind of had a similar transition. We, we kind of said, you know, people think we're irrelevant. People think we're not cool. So let's be cool. Let's get rid of all the irrelevant stuff in us. Let's get rid of all the stuff that people don't like. And let's be cool. Let's, let's, let's become relevant in the culture today. And, and, and along the process, I feel like we've kind of left behind some of the things that we think were, were not that cool. We're not that very uh, relevant uh, or seen as relevant in the culture. 
So for example, we talk a lot about things like wisdom, because that's cool, or power, or experience, but, but things like holiness, and purity, I don't hear a lot of conversation about those things anymore. I mean, after purity, I mean, after it sounds so puritanical, it sounds so old-fashioned, it sounds so out of touch with where we are. So I think especially in this moment, this conversation is incredibly important. What does it mean for us to be pure? What does it mean for us to be right in the eyes of God as God made us to be? Lead us to purity. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Lead us to purity. Lead us to the way that you have designed for us to be. And so as we think about this prayer, there's a couple of things, a couple of questions that I want to ask. First of all, why is purity important? Secondly, how do you or how do we pursue purity? And then lastly, what will be true of us if we are pursuing purity? So first, why is purity important? important. And really before we get to this question, I think we have to stop here because I don't know that we all have the same understanding of what we're talking about when I even say the word purity. What is the nature of purity? And in order to understand this, you really have to understand how the world works and how particularly we as Christians understand the world. So the Christian worldview says that God created everything good. And that's very important to understand. That everything in all of creation was initially, intentionally designed to be good and right. Everything was created good, but everything in all of creation, because of sin, has been distorted. It has been polluted, if you will. It has shifted. It has been stained. J.C. Ryle says it this way, sin is the universal disease of all mankind. We've all been diseased. We've all been polluted by sin. So again, the Christian view of the world is not that the world is all bad, but that everything that was created good in the world, all of it has been stained. It's it's all impure to one degree or another. And this is very important in understanding purity. It's very important in understanding the Christian worldview. So when you consider evil things or impure things, if you can you consider the, the worst corrupted things around us, all of those things are corruptions, dilutions, uh, stains of what was formerly a right and good desire. So for example, sexual impurity. Think of all the sexual impurity in our world, particularly in this city, just some of the gross exploitations of sex that happen in our city and across our world. But even the worst corruptions of sex flow from what was initially created as a good and beautiful desire, which is a desire for sex that was designed by God to be within the confines of a one-man, one-woman, monogamous lifetime relationship that we call marriage. And within that relationship, sex is celebrated and beautiful and good. So again, this is where I think people have a misunderstanding of Christian purity. We're not just labeling, okay, that's bad, and this is good, that's bad, and this is good. We understand that God created all things good. But all things, to one degree or another, have been corrupted by a misuse of God's design. Violence kind of works the same way. Violence 
is anchored in, the, the worst kind of violence that you see, most violence is anchored in, rooted in a desire for justice or a desire for respect. So for example, look at terrorist, terrorism, look at terrorist violence. It's a corruption of this. It's a horrible pollution of this. But a terrorist would anchor that violence in a desire for justice. It's a polluted desire for justice. It's a corrupted desire for justice. But there is something in their heart that is longing for, reaching for, something that way back before was corrupted by all these layers of sin was right and good. Gang violence, the same thing. What is gang violence ultimately? It is a desire for respect. It's a desire for attention. It's ultimately a cry for love in so many cases. Again, corrupted, harmful, sinful, evil, but it flows from something that was originally designed and even naturally designed to be good. And this is very important for us to understand as Christians. This is very different from a secular and humanistic world that we live in. The secular and humanistic world that we live in, first of all, it struggles to even define good and evil, right? Right? What, what are your anchors? What, how, are you, how are you basing what good and evil is? But what it has to do, what humanism always does, is it, is it blames the problems of the world on other humans or on other human institutions. So humanism always looks around and says, well, the problem are, is those people. The problem is this institution. The problem is that. It's not us. It's them. And if we could just fix them or get rid of them, then all would be well. But Christians, Christianity is so different. We understand that the world was created good, but then everything in the world, including ourselves, has been stained and polluted in one way or another. So when we see sexual impurity in the world, we can look at our own lives and say, you know what, this corruption may not be to that extent, but I see the same disease in my heart, the same pollution. It may not be to that extent, but the same disease is there, the same pollution is there. When we see violence, we can say, I see the same anger in my heart. It may not be to that extent that would lead me to do something so violent, but the same anger that flared up in them has flared, flared up in me. This is exactly the point that Jesus is making a chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew 5. Flip just like back one page with me. Matthew 5, 21. Listen to this. This is what Jesus is trying to say here. And maybe he says it a lot better than me, so let's just look at him. He says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, right? See those murderers out there doing all this wrong? But look at me. He says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, don't you see that the same corruption, pollution, impurity... Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Or look at, just skip down a couple verses to verse 27. He says, you have said it was old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you think you're so righteous because you haven't committed adultery and because you haven't murdered, but you're not righteous. The corruption that is true of their heart is true of your heart as well. And this, friends, is an incredible leveler. If you really believe this, if you really understand good and evil in this way, 
it will totally change the way that you look at the world, and it will totally leave you desiring and in need of a Savior. So let's begin here. We're going to talk about purity. We, We have to understand the nature of impurity. We have to understand what we're talking about with impurity. Everything was created good, but everything has been corrupted. Everything has been stained. Everything has been disordered by sin. J.C. Ryle also said, he that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness or purity, we can use those words kind of interchangeably, must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. So with that in place, now I think we can start to answer the question, why is holiness, why is purity so important, so necessary for the Christian life? And there's two ideas I want to give you here. The first is design. God created all things good, as I've said, and sin is any corruption of God's design, and I want you to hear this, and sin or any corruption of God's design is never as good as God's design. I think we, always, we have this understanding of the law of God or the way of God as a test. God is testing us. Can we have enough self-control? Can we do this? Can we do this? In order to prove ourselves to him, and if we can, he'll let us into heaven, and if we can't, we go to hell. It's like a job interview. Who gets to work for God's company here? Well, it's those that can rightly jump through the hoops of his law, but that's not how the Bible describes God at all. In fact, the Bible talks about God as a loving father who desires our good, who desires our joy. Hear this, who desires our freedom. Look at how the Bible talks about the law, how it talks about the word of God. This is just, and this is all throughout the word of God, but this is Psalm 19. Just read this with me. This is the psalmist David saying, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's not a trap. It's not a test. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. A hundred chapters later in Psalm, Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in all of the Bible, 176 verses. You know what the whole thing is about? It's all about the law and the word of God being beautiful and right and freeing and life-giving and good. But there is a desire in all of us to challenge the design of God to challenge the way of God. It's the initial desire of man. It's why Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. They thought the design of God wasn't right. They thought that it wasn't perfect. They thought that it wouldn't rejoice the heart. They thought that it wouldn't make wise the simple, and they tested it, and they disobeyed, and it ruined everything. And I want you to hear this. We've had anxiety and unrest and shame. But in God's design, I want you to hear this, there is freedom, there is rest, there is peace. This is the prayer of God. Lead us away from questioning your design. Lead us away from temptation to ever do that. Lead us to your design. Lead us to what is right and true, because in your design, there is peace and truth. And away from your design, there is only unrest. There is only anxiety. Have any of you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? 
If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of the most amazing reads. It's written by a guy named Solomon who had everything. He was the king of Israel. He had respect. He had power. He had women. He had a thousand women at his disposal. Everything that the, the world would say, this is what you want. He had, uh, he, had, he had more than just like the worldly kind of things. He also had, you know, a good reputation. I mean, he was wise. He had all these gifts. You know, people say, well, I want to spend the latter half of my life having a lasting impact, right? Solomon had a lasting impact. He built the temple. He did the most like holy and religious thing. His name was on everything. I mean, Solomon was the guy. Everything that men say they want, Solomon had. But if you read this book, this man is not satisfied. This man is not at rest. His soul is anxious. And he concludes the book in chapter 12 saying, look, the preacher, he refers to himself as a preacher. The preacher sought to find the words of delight. I was looking for delight, but uprightly he wrote the words of truth. What I, what I found was where real delight is, is in the truth of God. And then he's, he's speaking this as wisdom to his son. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these words. Don't question the design of God. There's a lot of books out there, and studying them is just weariness. And then he concludes, verse 13, the end of the matter, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Peace, delight, wholeness is impurity. It's in the design of God. When we question that, there is anxiety and, and fear and lack of peace. And if you don't believe the book of Ecclesiastes, watch Entertainment Tonight. Read People Magazine. The people... So often around us with the most things that the world promises that will bring peace and joy and happiness, fame, success, money, all of these things, what we find is they don't bring those things. They bring more anxiety, more unrest. If you've never read it, there's an article that was it's about five years old now, but it was by an ESPN writer named Wright Thompson called Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And I remember reading this, and I went back and read it this week, because it, it, for a kid like me who grew up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and in that time, when you're like in middle school in 92, you know, Michael Jordan could do no wrong. You know, everybody wanted to be like Mike. I mean, I watched him win six NBA championships. I watched him play baseball for the Birmingham Barons. This guy could do everything. He was amazing to watch, and he just won. I mean, he just give the ball to Jordan. He's going to do it. He's going to win. Remember the game against the Jazz when he was sick? I mean, I, I could go on. I'll, I'll quit. Read this article. It's from his 50th birthday. And this guy who has everything, has achieved everything, is an angry and miserable man who cannot go to sleep at night. Can't fall asleep at night. Yeah, again, to read this, if you took my middle school mind and explained it, I don't know if I could believe that that was true. But see, and again, there's nothing wrong with being successful or full or being good at basketball. That's not, the point is, if those things are your delight, you'll, you'll never find rest. You'll never find rest. The way of God, the order of God, the law of God, it's not a test. It's grace. Hear that. 
God's order is his grace. God's law is his grace to you. That's what James says. It's the law that gives liberty. It's the law that makes you free to live as you were designed to live. You see, purity, purity in God's design is the pathway to peace and joy. So we've looked at design. Secondly, why is purity important? It's distinction, distinction. I wish I could spend so much more time with all of these things. Christians are kind of notorious by trying to be distinct from the world, by kind of copying what the world has done, right? So we, we kind of take what the world's doing, we like put a little Christian label, and that's our distinction. We do this with music, we do this a lot of time with Christian music. We, we do it with, the, the most obvious one was Christian t-shirts. I don't know if y'all have ever seen any of these, but I was just looking at a few of these. They're almost kind of laughable, you know, catch up with Jesus, you know, I looked at another one, you know, not Facebook, but Faithbook, Jesus at as a friend. And then, you know, this was a little closer to home, the Holy Spirit, you can do it, he will help. And, and we, <laughs> we think we're being so distinct here, but somewhere along the way, Christian marketers have come up with this and say, you know, hey, we can be just like the world, we'll just add a little Christian flavoring and Christians will buy this. And the sad thing is, is we do. And we also do this, we don't just do it with our music and our t-shirts, we actually also do it with our preaching. You know, I, I uh, you ever seen these, you know, you see these in like office places, you know, posters like this, integrity and, you know, teamwork and service. And again, there's nothing wrong with these things. These are good things. These are good words. But I, I think a lot of Christian preaching is saying, hey, this is the kind of stuff that inspires people and they find valuable. They hung it up in their office. Maybe they can get it from a Christian preacher too. And so a lot of our preaching has become kind of similar to a self-help book or a Tony Robbins seminar. My point is in all of this, we have lost our distinctiveness. There is a, there is a distinction to the Christian life. The, the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of the church is how otherworldly it is. Just, just read the gospels. Just look at the life of Jesus. Just look at the early church. The, the wonder of Christianity is that the world can't pin us down. There isn't good categories for the way of Christ. Now, Jesus comes onto the scene and just blows everybody up and frustrates everybody up. And the same thing with the early church. People didn't know how to categorize the early church. You know, the early church, for example, they were radically concerned with the poor. I mean, people were selling land. They were giving away fortunes to care for the poor. The early church was, was radically concerned with, with racial unity. They were bringing, it was, it was a time of great division in the early church. And the, the early church was bringing people of different races together. The early church, in a way that really had never happened before, was dignifying and, uh, and, and supporting and loving women like, like nobody in the world was doing at that time. And, you know, you look at that and you think, oh, the early church, it was obvious they were liberals. You know, they're doing all these kind of liberal things. But, but at the same time, the, the early church was radically committed to sexual purity. And the early church was also radically committed to individual responsibility. I mean, Paul tells the Thessalonians, if a man does not work, he does not eat. They were radically committed to knowing the scripture, not the, the Old Testament scripture. Knowing it and memorizing it and preaching it. If you look at this, you're, well, the early church are obviously just a bunch of conservatives. And, and the point is, is that they were both and neither. They couldn't categorize the early church. Just look at the ministry of Jesus. They couldn't catch him. Christianity was born into a Hebrew world and a Greek world. 
the Hebrew world was very concerned with place, with event, uh, with, with moment, with relationship, the physical thing, the, the actual place. This is still true in Hebrew culture. It's why, for example, the Western Wall is so important. It's an actual place that you can go where something happened. The crossing of the Red Sea, it's an actual event that happened in time. That's an anchor for Hebrew people, a tradition like the Passover. We do this every single year. This is how Hebrew people anchor themselves, how they understand themselves. The Greeks were the opposite. They didn't believe in the specific moment or event. They they wanted the transcendent, right? So it wasn't the event of deliverance. It was the idea of deliverance. It was the idea of consistency. It wasn't these events that they made sense of life. It was the transcendent things. So here you have Jesus coming onto the scene, and he blows both of these things up. They can't categorize him. You have Jesus coming onto the scene in this Hebrew world. He was the Jewish Messiah, but he was also the Savior of the whole world. Very Greek idea. Jesus died for our sins on the cross at a local place, at a local time. But in that local event and local time, he was dying for the sins of the whole world. This Greek, big, transcendent idea. Jesus uh, did all of these local miracles in real places. Very Hebrew idea. To prove that he was the Son of God. This very big, transcendent idea. The early Christians, they were, they were very concerned with events, things like baptisms, things that happen in local places. But they also were saying things like the temple is no longer a building. It's the people of God that are going and it's a living temple. Very Greek idea. The, the point is, Christians have always been distinct and hard to categorize. This is, this is the otherworldliness of us. This is the distinction of us. And I would say this is the purity of the Christian world. We're not stained by the courses of this world. We're not dragged down by the courses of this world. No, we have found our identity. We have found our way in God and who God made us to be. Don't be pulled away from God's design by the false courses of a dying world. So distinction and design, that's why our purity is important. But secondly, second big point of the day is how do you pursue this? How do we go after this? How do we pursue purity? And this is where this prayer is so important. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us away from the temptation of sin. Lead us away from impurity. Lead us toward what is good and right and beautiful. And part of understanding that prayer, and I want to say this very clearly, part of understanding that prayer is understanding how God is leading you what God has given you to lead you away from temptation. And I want to spend a little time talking about that. What has God given us that will lead us away from temptation, that will lead us toward purity? And so in order for us to pursue purity, in order for us to be a pure people, there's three things that I want us to think about. First of all, we have to be a people of the word. If you truly want to be a pure person, pure in God's design. You have to be a person of the word. Are you a person of the word? How else are you going to delight in God's word, to delight in God's way, to be distinct by God's design? Are you a person of the word? And and you might say, well, what does that mean? Let me just give you five things. I think it means at least these things. First is what you're doing right now. So good job. You're off to a good start. Be regularly sitting under biblical preaching. You need to be doing this. We need to be collectively thinking together about what God has communicated to us. We need to be, for example, thinking about what does this prayer mean? Lead us not into temptation. 
Secondly, you, you need to be regularly consuming God's word on your own. And you know, I, I want to take some responsibility here. We want to do a better job of equipping you to do this. We, we have said the prayer conference. We're going to have a conference about reading God's word coming up uh, in a few months. We, we, we need to do a better job about giving you some Bible reading plans. But I just want to encourage you. Are, are you regularly consuming the word of God on your own? Are you a person of the word? You are being discipled every day by a secular world. Are you being discipled by the word of God? Number three is, is to be discussing these things, discussing God's word in community. This is why we love our community groups. We're thinking about, okay, what does the purity of God mean together? And we need one another to keep us from being deceived, to keep us from running off on tangents to truly understand God's word. Fourth, and I realize this is maybe requires more explanation than I can give, but I want everyone in our church to have a basic understanding of biblical hermeneutics. Now, you say, what does hermeneutics mean? Hermeneutics is, is a technical word that refers to how you read the Bible. And so, for example, you read the history of Scripture differently than you read prophecy of Scripture. You read the letters of Paul differently than you would read the Gospels. You read the narrative of the book of Exodus different than you would read the writings like the Psalms or even Ecclesiastes. But we can talk more about that later. But you, if you want to be a person of the Word, when I said the explanation of this, you should at least be like, okay, I understand a little bit how that works. And then fifth, I want you to have a basic understanding of biblical theology and systematic theology. We say, well, what do those things mean? Biblical theology is the way that all of the Bible fits together. So how does, for example, Exodus, the Psalms, the Gospels, and Paul's letters, how are they all telling the same story? And how can you understand the keys that will unlock a continuum between those different types of literatures written in different times, written to different audience. How is God in all of that communicating and building his church? That's the idea of biblical theology. And then systematic theology is understanding what the whole Bible has to say about any one thing. So for example, how do we understand the idea of sin or salvation or purity? And you might be thinking, okay, I, I need some work here. And again, just keep coming. We're, we, we want to equip you in all of these things. But if you're like, man, I want some work today, this is where, let's go to the next slide. This is where the text to pastor line comes in. Call me, text me, come find me in the lobby. Say, hey, what's a good source on hermeneutics? What's a good source on biblical theology? What is a good Bible reading plan? I need some help here. We want to equip you. But if we want to pursue purity, we have to be a people of the word. Secondly, if we want to pursue purity, if we want God to lead us in purity, we have to be a people of the church. We have to be a people of the church. Now, I'm about to say something that some of you might disagree with. And again, this is where the text of pastor line comes in handy. I would love to have this conversation with you. If you find yourself disagreeing with this, come find me, text me. Let's have the conversation. But in this town, in our town particularly, and in a lot of towns, but in Atlanta, I believe that our city is very confused and churches in our city are, are very confused on what it means to be a people of the church. A lot of people in Atlanta kind of understand Christianity in this way. I'm a member of the church, but I'm not a member of a church. And I get this from this church and this from this church and this from that church. And what I want to say is if this is your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, that is not New Testament Christianity. That is 21st century American individualistic consumeristic Christianity. 
It's not New Testament Christianity. It is an individualistic, consumeristic Christianity. What we see in the New Testament is not this kind of attitude at all. Rather, it is a covenantal, communal, self-giving kind of language that talks about the church. The words, you've heard me say this before, but words like body, family, household. This is how the church is described. This is what it means to be a member of the church. And I just want to say, if you, if you, if you find yourself in this kind of consumeristic way, I just want to warn you, you are in great jeopardy of being deceived. In that scenario, I'm going to get this from this and this from this and this from this. Don't you see the problem here? It puts you at the center of everything. And Jesus and his church just exists to serve you and your spiritual needs. And in that scenario, watch out, friend. You are in great danger of deceiving yourself. In order to really find purity, you must be known. You need to be a part of a body of people that know you, with pastors and shepherds that are looking out for you. You must be known by people. Find this. Now, again, it doesn't have to be Christ's covenant, but join some church where they believe in church membership, where pastors and shepherds know who you are and are watching out for you and will care about your soul. If we want to pursue purity together, you cannot do this alone. You will be deceived every time. Look at the New Testament. There's warnings all over the place. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And how do we fight deception? With one another. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we're getting killed. We're getting killed. Because I think there's so many people in this town and nobody knows them. And nobody knows the echoes of their heart. Nobody's vulnerable. If you want to pursue purity, you have to be a people of the word. You have to be a people of the church. And you have to be a people of mission. Pursuing purity, hear this, means distinction from the world, but not isolation from the world. Those are two th- different things. Pursuing purity means distinction from the world, but not isolation from the world. In fact, I would argue that if you're totally isolated from the world, it's not as good of an environment for pursuing purity. And, and I would argue that for many reasons, but let me just give you one. It's my own experience. When I was in high school, I had many non-Christian friends. I didn't have a lot of Christian friends in high school. I was, I was going to a good church. I loved the Lord. I was, I was growing in my faith, but my faith was a struggle because I didn't have a lot of guys around me praying for me, encouraging me, stirring me along. And I got to college, I had a lot of Christian friends that were praying for me and that were challenging me, and I had a lot of non-Christian friends. It was a, it was a good environment. I, I had people that were encouraging me, but I also was very aware that there was a lot of people that didn't know the Lord around me all the time. Then I got to seminary, and of course, all my friends were Christians, right? They, they were all pastors. They wanted to be pastors, and a lot of people around me pursuing me, encouraging me, but I, I kind of lost a foothold of what the real world was like. I was in kind of an over-spiritualized environment. Now, what's interesting, if you consider those three environments, I think in all of that, I was growing in Christ. I, I would say I was a Christian through all of that and, and growing as a Christian. But the, 
the time where my heart was, was most captured by the Lord, I would say, in that, those three seasons, the, the time when I think my, my growth was steepest toward the Lord was in college, not in seminary, not in this time of being totally isolated from the world. And my point is, you need a church. You need to gather. You need this. You need community. You need to be known. But you also need to scatter. You also need to scatter out into the world and realize, okay, like I'm on a mission here for Jesus. That will actually create a purity and a distinction in your heart that I think isolation never will. There's so much more to be said there, but if we want to pursue purity, let's be a people of the word, a people of the church, and a people of mission. Lead us not into temptation, Lord. Lead us away from these dilutions and divisions and and pollutions of your way. Lead us to what is right, and God is doing that in his church. He's doing that in his word, and he's doing that through his mission. But lastly, what will be true of my life? If, If I'm pursuing purity, what will be true of us? And again, this is where this prayer is so helpful, and I want to think about the second part, and I love these two words. The second part of this prayer is perhaps the most powerful, and it's just this. It's just the cry, deliver us. Lead us not temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us. Deliver us. What will be true of your life if you're truly pursuing purity? It will be this kind of deep dependence. It will be this cry of deliver us. Deliver us. You know the problem with purity? You know the problem with purity? No one's pure. No one's pure. No one's here. No one, none of, if you're visiting our church, I'm sorry. All these people are messed up. And I'm messed up. No one's pure. Read the Bible. Look at the Old Testament. God is kind to his people. He loves his people. He saves his people. He gives them his word. He gives them all of these very clear, explicit instructions to live by. And guess what? Every single time, they don't follow the instructions. Sometimes they act like they're following, and they're not. And God hates that even worse. They show that they're even less pure. They're they're impure and they're acting like they're pure, which is worse than just being impure and being impure. No one's pure. And so this is very tricky for Christians and we've tried to reconcile this. How can God on one side say be pure and on this side no one is pure? And so, you know, you have liberals that approach the Bible and say, you know what? We can't be perfect. So let's just love, right? Let's not pay too much attention to the law of God here. Let's just accept people for how they are. Let's just love one another. It's kind of the liberal approach. Let's not be too particular about God's design. And on the other side, you have kind of the legalistic fundamentalist that if they're honest, they say, well, we, we know we can't be perfect, but we're sure not going to drink or dance or smoke or whatever. Like, let's have some super rules, That'll make us distinct, right? We're not doing those things. We, yeah, we, we, may, we may tell a white lie over here and there, may overheal, but we're not doing that stuff. But here comes Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He blows all that up like he always does. Jesus comes and he's too perfect for the fundamentalist and he's too loving for the liberal. He goes to the fundamentalist and he says... You want to have a place with God? You think you're okay because you've made up a couple of super rules. But here's what I say to you. You've got to be perfect. 
and not just your actions, but your heart too. How you doing now? How you doing when I expose every thought and intention of your heart? How you doing now? Are you perfect? He's too perfect for the fundamentalist. And then he goes to liberal who is, who is scorning the design of God. And as I said before, who is scorning the grace of God. To, to bat an eye at sin, to say that sin is not a big deal, it's not loving. It's the most cruel thing that you could do. And it, and it breaks my heart when I see pastors who irresponsibly are allowing their people to continue in a pathway of sin. That is cruel. It's not loving. It's damning. Jesus is way too loving for the liberal. He's way too perfect for the fundamentalist. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus came and he was totally pure. Every intention of his heart, every thought that he had all the time was always right, was always pure. He totally obeyed God's way and yet he willingly and lovingly became impure. He willingly and lovingly took on our impurities. He took on all our shames. He took on all of our faults. He became our unrighteousness. He was totally obedient, yet loving enough to join with people like us. You know, people say, as I've heard people say, well, sure, Jesus was obedient. You know, he was Jesus. It was easy for him. I've got real temptation that I'm struggling with here. But don't you see you're getting it all wrong? Jesus actually was tempted more than you've ever been tempted. Jesus felt the, the weight of sin more than you ever have. Hear this about him. He was fully man. The Bible says he was tempted in every way, just as you are, yet without sin. The Bible tells us that he was tempted by Satan himself, and yet he never sinned. Therefore, he felt the weight of sin. You know, I don't, this doesn't happen to me anymore, but when I used to think I was strong, I would try to lift weights sometimes. And I would do a rep. Now I only lift weights that I know I can lift, right? That's called old man weightlifting. But when I was a little younger, I used to try to lift weights. And I, and I would try to be pushing out the rep. And you know what? I, would, I wouldn't be strong enough. I would fail. Well, you know what that means? What, it, what does it mean if you fail at a rep? It means you don't feel the full weight of the weight. You failed. You didn't lift the whole weight. And see, all of us have collapsed under the weight of sin, which means we haven't really felt its full weight, yet Jesus himself never failed in the face of sin. He's felt the weight of sin to a greater degree than any of us because he completed the rep every single time. He locked out, and yet he's felt the pain of sin in a greater way than any of us have either. Jesus, who was totally pure, became all of our sin. He was forsaken by his Father in that. He experienced the full pain of hell on the cross. Last night, I uh, went with some friends here, and we saw this choral concert from the Atlanta Master Choral Group, Music in the Civil War, and I was really struck. There was one line, they sang some old spiritual songs, and I was really struck by this one line. 
and you've probably heard this song before, but nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And I was thinking about that. Here you have this slave somewhere, we don't know who that song was written by, in some southern plantation, who understands this. Who understands that even though he was perfect in every way, fellowship with God in every way, he knows the struggle. He knows our sorrow. He's, he's identified with us in every way. He took on all our sin. He, 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 he's felt temptation in a heavier way. He's felt the pain of sin in a heavier way than any of us had. And he did that for you and for me so that we who are impure could be made pure. So that we who are sinless, sinful could be made sinless. So that we so that we who are corrupted could be made clean and pure. Your only hope is to look to Jesus. Your only hope for purity and my only hope for purity is this prayer, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And so as we look to him, let's pray that together. Father, I, I know that Jesus knows the trouble that we've seen he knows the temptation that we face. He knows the pain that we have, the brokenness that we have. And so, Father, I pray that we would look to him, that we would realize how deeply he has loved us, that he was willing to join us in our most corrupted state, to join us even there, Lord, to bear our weight, to bear our sin, to make us pure. Give us faith to look to him. Lord, if we look to ourselves, we will never be pure. We will only be exposed. But Father, give us faith even now, right now, Lord, to look to Jesus. I pray that we would find our purity in him. And it is for him and in his name that I pray. Amen.